Good morning and happy Father's Day. I'm Charles Osgood and this is Sunday morning. With gifts and cards and maybe a dinner out, millions of Americans are honoring their dads today, realizing that tomorrow many dads will head out the door and back to another busy work week that allows precious little family time. No wonder a growing number of new dads are embracing the opportunity to briefly enjoy an alternate lifestyle where daddy's home. Lee Cowan will report our Sunday morning cover story. Oh, God bless you. For new dads like Mark Wynarski, being a father is one of the most rewarding jobs on the planet. You learn who they are and, and more importantly, they learn who I am. I've got big important things to do. But getting time off to make that early bond isn't easy. This isn't just a women's issue. This is a family economic issue. One for the money. Family leave and where dads fit into the picture ahead on Sunday morning. Staying afloat is a story from Barry Peterson about small business owners trying to keep their heads and everything else above water. In Vietnam's Mekong Delta, Fruit and vegetable merchants have been selling off boats like these for a thousand years. It's also a place to get a hot bowl of pork and rice noodle soup. The Kai Rung market lasted through wars and communism, but now faces a new threat. Later on Sunday morning, can the floating market survive modern times? Bill Geist introduces us to some feline phenoms. Steve Hartman helps his own father move from the family's longtime home. A famous and funny dad, Jim Gaffigan, questions the need for Father's Day. Oh. Ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. This is what you want? Daddy's home. But first, aftermath. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As you've heard, Charleston, South Carolina's Emanuel AME Church has reopened for its Sunday service this morning, while the investigation goes on into the shooting that left nine people dead. And once again, there are all those sad and terrible questions. Here's Martha Teichner. We have victims, nine of them. Dylan Roof stood expressionless during his bond hearing Friday, forced to listen to unseen family members of the Charleston dead. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. Ethel Lance's daughter spoke. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. God forgive you. And I forgive you. Their forgiveness stunning. Their pain heartbreaking. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. Tawanza Sanders is my son, but Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. Tawanza Sanders, 26 years old, was the youngest. He died shielding his aunt, Susie Jackson, 87, the oldest. Clemente Pinckney, pastor of the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church and a South Carolina state senator, was also killed. You please send out an EMS uh, command page 
advising of an active shooter, multiple people down. How, in 2015, could nine people attending a Bible study group be gunned down inside this historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina? Soon, the strange and awful story began to unfold. Why did you do it? Of the young white man who sat for an hour with his victims before he shot them, reportedly uttering racial slurs and saying, I had to do it. Okay, another mass shooting, another lone wolf gunman, another Aurora, another Newtown. Or was this something different? An ugly echo of the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four little girls were killed. These churches were both targeted because they were uh, used by black people. I've been in Philadelphia longer than I've been in anywhere. We moved in Mark Kelly Tyler is senior pastor at Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. We spoke to him at another AME church in Harlem. You say that this young man is 21. I mean, 21, my God. He was born, you know, after the Huxtables. How do you get this about black people at 21 years old, except that somebody purposely teaches you this and that this spirit and this mentality is still alive and uh, is still, you know, out there in the atmosphere. Yesterday, a website surfaced showing photographs of Dylan Roof posing with a gun and burning the American flag. It includes a white supremacist manifesto. The writer says, I was not raised in a racist home or environment, but spews hatred for blacks, Hispanics, and Jews, and says, I chose Charleston because it is the most historic city in my state. Could we not argue that America is about freedom, whether we live it out or not? Freedom to be full what God intends us to be. The Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mother Emanuel, might as well have had a bullseye painted on it. Pastor Clemente Pinckney's words in 2013 sound prophetic now. Sometimes you may have to die like Denmark Vesey to do that. In 1822, Denmark Vesey, one of the founders of Mother Emanuel, organized a failed slave revolt. He and 34 co-conspirators were hanged. Angry whites burned the church down. Symbols of black power, black churches, have often been targets. More than 300 were bombed in the 1960s. But weren't we supposed to be past all that? In Chicago, on the night Barack Obama was elected president, there was a sea of jubilant people, black and white, I think a lot of people thought that it was a turning point, that we had reached a post-racial America. Hmm. I think that those people were fooling themselves. Jameel Smith is a senior editor at The New Republic. The people in that crowd celebrating understood what a pivotal moment that this was, uh, that Barack Obama, as a symbol, offered a lot of hope. But that said, it certainly didn't make racism go away. According to a CBS News New York Times poll conducted in May during the unrest in Baltimore following the death in police custody of Freddie Gray, 
61% of Americans, the highest percentage since 1992, believe race relations in the United States are bad, up from just 38% in February. So does the race factor make the Mother Emanuel killings different from Adam Lanza's massacre of schoolchildren in Newtown, Connecticut? Should this latest incident instead be seen alongside the police shootings of black men, including Walter Scott in North Charleston, a few miles away in April? It's all part of the same thread. Black bodies are under assault in this country. And whether it be from 21-year-old, quote-unquote, lone wolves, or they be from the police, we need to understand the urgency of that. The apparent motivations of the shooter remind us that racism remains a blight that we have to combat together. On Friday, President Obama tried to connect the dots between race, mass shootings, and gun control. I know today's politics makes it less likely that we see any sort of serious gun safety legislation. I remarked that it was very unlikely that this Congress would act. And some reporters, I think, took this as resignation. I want to be clear, I am not resigned. I have faith we will eventually do the right thing. I don't think that this tragedy is about the gun debate. Personally, I don't. I mean, the Birmingham bombing, for example, it wasn't a gun, it was a bomb. AME pastor Mark Kelly Tyler. It's just eerie how all of these things, you know, you talk about then and now, seem to kind of mirror those moments. So is it a turning point? I'll just simply say this. I hope that, uh, that their lives have not been lost in vain. It's already a tragedy, but it would be even more of a tragedy if nothing good comes out of it. Charleston, South Carolina is known as the holy city because of all of its churches. After Wednesday's shooting, there may have been anger, but there was no violence. Only people gathered together peacefully to mourn and pray. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Say hello to baby Cleo. Her proud father is David Rothman, one of our Sunday morning producers. But if in the days after Cleo's birth you asked anyone around here where David was, the answer would have been, Daddy's home on parental leave. That's an opportunity that lots of working fathers would like, but one that for many is difficult, if not impossible, to get. Our cover story is reported now by Lee Cowan. Laney turkey sandwich? Yeah. Awesome. Scott Broderick may be the best one-handed sandwich maker around. You want me to do it? I got it. That bundle in his hand is the family's newly adopted son, Shay. Yelled the dumping truck coming through. I've got big, important things to do. When they brought him home last month, Scott decided to do something that most fathers in this country simply can't do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is what you want? He's staying home from work for six weeks. You're pretty predictable. 
so he can soak up plenty of father-son moments like this. He won't remember these times, but I certainly will. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been great bonding time for us. One oh, for the money! His company, Price Waterhouse Coopers in Chicago, has a policy toward new fathers that is generous to say the least. That month and a half Scott's getting, it's all paid. So what do other dads tell you when you tell them how much time you got? Uh, jaws hit the floor. It's, it's an unbelievable policy and, and really rare uh, for the father to be able to take six weeks off. According to the United Nations, 71 countries offer paid leave for new fathers, but the U.S. isn't one of them. The U.S. also lags behind in paid leave for mothers. In fact, we're one of only two countries in the world that doesn't offer it. The other is Papua New Guinea. If that sounds like a joke, that's because some think it's become one. Just us and Papua New Guinea. That's as unlikely a pairing as Sofia Vergara and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> Separately, great. But if it's just the two of them with no one else, it makes you feel like one of them has taken her eye off the ball. There have been some changes on the issue. In 1993, President Clinton signed into law the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA. It grants up to 12 weeks of leave, but that's unpaid. And it's only offered to full-time workers at firms with 50 or more employees. They also have to have worked more than 1,200 hours in a 12-month period, which leaves an estimated 40% of other workers out of luck. Oh, God bless you. Mark Winarski, who works as a teacher in Connecticut for special needs kids, just had his second daughter, Hannah, last month. Although he was eligible to take leave under the FMLA, 12 weeks without a paycheck, he says, just wasn't realistic. Legally, I could have, but uh, financially, there's no way we could have done that. There's no way. Instead, Mark had to stitch together his paternity leave. It's really, it, it comes down to vacation time for me because... That's when, your only option? That's my only option, yeah. Hey, Grace, do you want to play? Yeah. He's taking all his paid vacation and sick days combined. Go! That will give him at least a few weeks at home with Hannah and his wife, Sarah. He did the same thing when their first daughter, Grace, was born. And he says it was worth every second. She sees me and she drops what she's doing and she runs over and says, Daddy, and gives me a huge hug. And there's absolutely nothing that can take away that feeling. And, and uh, it's just really special. There is growing evidence to suggest that fathers who do take time off after their child's birth are more likely to be involved with the care of their kids over the long term. A Boston College study shows that most dads take an average of about two weeks. But there are many dads who worry that taking even that much time off might have adverse effects on their careers. There's still this stigma that men are breadwinners, um, that they have to be providing for their families and not necessarily caring for their children. Vicki Chabo is vice president of the nonprofit National Partnership for Women and Families. She says there's plenty of workplace pressure that makes it harder for dads to feel comfortable taking parental leave, whether it's paid or unpaid. Daniel Murphy, second baseman for the New York Mets, was roundly criticized last spring when he missed the first two games of the season because he took just three days of paternity leave after the birth of his son. Our culture needs to catch up to where people's lives are and where fathers and mothers' interests are in terms of um, a man's engagement in their household. Can mommy see you smile this morning? 
It is, of course, moms who usually end up taking the bulk of family leave, but they too often end up using every vacation and sick day they have, if they have them at all. Myona Bennett hadn't worked at her company long enough to qualify for any leave before she got pregnant with her second son, Jacob. I was thinking that maybe if I'll get fired, <laughs> I'll get fired and I won't, when I have my baby, I won't have a job. To put a little extra in savings, she worked up until just two days before she gave birth. Even when I had him, I was so exhausted to the point where someone else had to lift my baby up and show him to me because I was so tired. I was so tired. Because you worked right up until the last... Right up until the last minute. Although her supervisor didn't have to, she held Myona's job. But Myona had to be back to work the following month. How hard was that? I mean... Very hard. What was, the, what was the hardest part about it? The hardest part was leaving my baby with people that I really knew. After such a short amount of time? Yes. I didn't feel like I got to bond with them at all. Whether it's moms or dads, last month, a CBS News New York Times poll showed that 80% of those surveyed are in favor of requiring employers to offer some kind of paid leave for new parents. In his State of the Union speech this year, President Obama, who grew up largely without his father, pushed for paid leave. So it's time we stop treating childcare as a side issue or as a women's issue and treat it like the national economic priority that it is for all of us. In response, Democrats reintroduced a bill called the Family Act that would offer three months of paid leave at 66% of a worker's salary, up to a certain amount. The question with paid leave is, who's going to pay for it? Critics like Elizabeth Melito, senior executive counsel at the National Federation of Independent Business, say most employers already offer paid sick leave and vacation days. Requiring companies to offer more paid leave on top of that to take care of a new child is going to cost someone, somewhere. They can't just pass it on to consumers. What is it going to mean? It's probably going to mean lower wages for the employees. So you're going to hurt the very people you're trying to help. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. But proponents point to success at the state level. Many states are considering it, but California today did it. California passed the country's first paid leave law back in 2002, offering workers six weeks of paid leave at up to 55% of their wages. It's employee-funded through a payroll tax, not employer-funded. And so far, the majority of California employers, 91% in one study, reported that the law had either a positive or no noticeable effect on company profitability. It disproves sort of the sky is falling um, refrain that we always hear from organized business interests. New Jersey and Rhode Island have since followed California's lead. And Chabo says at least 18 other states had bills introduced for paid leave in the last legislative session. Can I get a high five? Awesome. No law is going to make a person a better parent. But most agree there are ways to make being one a little easier. He sounded scared, but nobody heard or nobody cared. And for dads, on this day in particular... That can go a long way. Next, Jane Russell and Billy the Kid. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
I'm looking for trouble And I don't care what people say And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. June 21st, 1921, 94 years ago today. The day actress Jane Russell was born in the small town of Bemidji, Minnesota. Her family moved to California, where she took acting lessons and did some modeling. And at age 19, was discovered by billionaire aviator and Hollywood producer Howard Hughes, who cast her in his Western film, The Outlaw. Hughes reputedly had engineers design a brassiere especially for her, though she would deny ever wearing it. Be careful your wound, you'll hurt yourself. Whatever the truth, her revealing for the time attire and her steamy scenes opposite Jack Butel as Billy the Kid provoked a censorship battle that delayed the film's national release for several years. You got yourself a traveling companion. Other less controversial films followed. Keep traveling. I love you in books. Bob Hope serenaded her in the 1948 comedy western The Pale Face. Now one of these days in my fancy clothes. In 1953, she sang alongside Marilyn Monroe. The one who broke my heart. In the musical comedy Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Unable to have children, Jane Russell was an adoptive mother and the founder of a group called World Adoption International Fund, or WAIF. Hello, Jane. Hi, Ed. And in a 1956 interview with Edward R. Murrow on CBS's Person to Person, she described its mission. Uh, there are so many children that are uh, throughout the European countries and other places in the world, and they need homes, and there's so many people in the world that want children very badly that WAIF is kind of formed to get these two needs together. She remained a prominent advocate for adoption for the rest of her life, even as those prime film roles became fewer. Jane Russell died in 2011 at the age of 89. She was once quoted as saying, Publicity can be terrible, but only if you don't have any. Next, the cat's meow. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it there's a traveling circus crossing the country featuring some very small performers and some very high profile roles and bill geist has saved us a ringside seat ringling brothers is phasing out elephants so what could ever replace them could it be cats? How about the amazing acro cats? They're ready to claw their way to the top. Samantha Martin is ringmaster and bus driver of this cat circus. She's driven her acro cats tens of thousands of miles to venues from Maine to California. She's worn out two RVs and now this rattletrap 1963 bus. How many cats do you have on board here now? Well, there's 14 cats in the show, and then we have three foster kittens. Oh, there's another one. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yes, they are everywhere. 17 cats. That's a lot of scooping. But showbiz isn't all glamour. This actually was the master bedroom when I bought the bus, so we converted it to a cat habitat. You sleep uh, up there now? Yes, we sleep up there with a fold-out couch and a makeshift bed. I wake up sometimes sweaty and covered in cats. Hers is an alternative lifestyle. Is it hard to explain to people what your occupation is? 
Yeah, oh yeah. What do you put on your 1040 form? Oh, cat trainer. And they're like, cat trainer? (laughs) She can get cats to jump through hoops, turning some of them into stars. Some of them appear on like tidy cats packages and cats pride cat litter. This is certainly better than her first stab at show business. I actually started my company with rats 25 years ago. Rats? And uh, I discovered there was really no rats to riches story. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you choose cats to train? Because so many people think that cats can't be trained. How did you know they could be trained? Any animal that has a food drive uh, and has a brain can be trained. Samantha's secret is sumptuous rewards for her cats. Bits of fresh ahi tuna. You know, the sushi you can't afford. We're going to show you how to click your way to a better cat. She even sells DVDs, sharing the tricks of her trade. Click and then deliver your cat a small treat. Your results may vary. Repeat this until your cat understands the connection between the sound of the clicker and the treat. We met up with the AcroCats in Orlando, Florida during their 14 sold-out standing room only performances. Got cat ears, got my cat bag. We're ready. Cat t-shirt. <gasps> cat t-shirt! Where tickets were $20 and souvenirs were abundant. It's an irresistible cat ears made from scratch. People actually are showing up in droves to see the show because there's really not a lot of cat entertainment out there for the cat lovers. There was exciting high-wire walking and intricate weaving and spectacular climbing. Allie performed her breathtaking Guinness World Record feline long jump. But no two shows are alike. The cats have a tendency to go off script and sometimes off stage. The grand finale is the rock cats. Musically speaking, they're not really very good. But they're not hep cats, they're house cats. The show may be a work in progress, but Samantha never tires of life on the road with cats. I get to travel with the animals I love all the time. And it's great being able to share with people, like, hey, look what cats can do. She knows they can do plenty. And with enough cat litter and gas money, she plans to show the world. Coming up. Adrift in history. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Staying afloat is what all business people hope to do at the very least. And that's particularly true for the folks Barry Peterson shows us in a postcard from Vietnam. It is barely dawn. And Do Ming Tu and her husband are already hard at work selling the pork broth soup she got up at 3 a.m. to cook. She adds in green beans and rice noodles, meat and Vietnamese spices, pungent and peppery. You eat one bowl, she promises a customer. You will feel full all day. For 20 years, she's been the best-selling soup lady at the Kai Rung Floating Market in the south of Vietnam. The buyers fight each other, she says, to buy my soup. 
This is capitalism at its best. Big boat owners bring in watermelon and pumpkins, cabbages and turnips, garlic and sweet potatoes from fields as far as 50 miles away. There is even advertising of a sort. Sellers tie a sample of their goods, like pumpkins or garlic, to a pole. At wholesale, as in off the big boat, a watermelon might go for about 25 cents, bought by owners of smaller boats who will peddle their goods at 100% markup on the canals and streams of the Mekong Delta. And there are other businesses amid the swarm of boats. A lottery ticket salesman. Or the coffee woman. Here, Starbucks comes to you. One boat is like a floating 7-Eleven with sodas and snacks. Another is a bobbing sandwich shop. And like smart business owners everywhere know, sales go better with a smile. Customers like to buy from sellers who are laughing and happy, Mrs. Tuk told us. No one wants to buy from someone in a bad mood. The floating market has been like this for a thousand years. Surviving Asian conquerors come and gone. The Americans who fought a river war here. Even the communists who left this slice of capitalism alone. But times are changing. A decade ago, the floating market stretched nearly a mile. Today, it is half that. The tourists, especially the Vietnamese, now come to see a fading part of their own history. To make life better for the people of the Mekong Delta, there is a push for progress. But progress might just push this age-old market into extinction. Modern supermarkets sell vegetables in air-conditioned comfort. New bridges and roads mean trucks, not boats, bring in goods. Shopping is about navigating traffic-jammed roads. But there is something else changing, and maybe it's not such a bad thing. Take 45-year-old Ho Thi Thanh Vân. She paddles the canal, selling door-to-door what she bought from the floating market. She earns maybe $10 a day, but her daughter is studying English at college. So she sweats and struggles with a single hope that many share, that she will be the last generation forced to work like this, that her children will have a better life. And in that hope may be the last real chapter here, because a better future for the next generation will surely mean an end to this little slice of age-old smiling and hustling capitalism that once thrived on the ebb and flow of a mighty river. Next, speed, always taking it slow. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. Word of the demise of Speed, the tortoise. A star of the San Diego Zoo since the 1930s, 
Speed hailed from the Galapagos Islands and was believed to be more than 150 years old, making him a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln and Queen Victoria. This zoo video shows him in happier times. Speedy is our largest tortoise. He weighs in at about 617 pounds. Um, he's actually very shy. You can see he's kind of tucked into his shell right now. In a long ago abandoned tradition, children were actually allowed to ride on the backs of all the zoo's Galapagos tortoises. Sadly, as with humans, time and tide wait for no tortoise. We're told arthritis and other ailments have been tormenting Speed for some time now, leading zookeepers to try everything from physical therapy to acupuncture, yes, acupuncture. Finally came the decision this past Friday to euthanize Speed. His life's journey over. We pause so all of us might heed the long life of the tortoise Speed. 150 years, we're told, he made the most of growing old. Ahead, moving day at the Hartman home. How long were you planning on living here? The rest of my life. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Not long before this Father's Day, at Steve Hartman's childhood home, it was moving day. A day for looking both forward and back, as Steve now explains. Long before I went on the road, there was one road. Malcolm Road in Toledo, Ohio. There was one house, number 1053, and one man, my number one. You recognize any of these? I sure do. My father, George Hartman, built this house himself back in 1955. I sure do. How long were you planning on living here? The rest of my life. But uh, when we built this house, we didn't consider stairs as a factor when you got old. And so here we are. At that moment, elderly parents and their grown children seem to dread equally the selling of the family home. I prefer to stay, but you also have to realize that all good things come to an end. After my mom died last year, it became increasingly difficult for him to manage on his own. So last month, my brother Joe and I went to Toledo to pack up his things. You see what that is? What is that? My mother's hair when she died. She never got gray hair, as you can see. I would have taken your word for it. <laughs> we spent a couple days trying to help Dad with his downsizing. Oh, yeah, I don't want to throw anything away like that. Okay. Which at times felt more like same-sizing. Shoehorn? Yeah, I was looking for that. But when pressed, the only things that truly mattered centered on either his faith... Rosary? Yeah. ...or his family. I love you, Dad. Happy Valentine's Day. You want to throw that away? No. <laughs> a house that raised a family is so much more than wood and shingles. It's home to almost every memory of our younger lives. It's in the background of everything we were and helped make us who we are. It's where we learn to feel safe, sound, and sometimes even invincible. Yes, technically a house is just a place. But at times like this, it sure feels more like a person. My dad is now moving to a one-story apartment near my other brother, Mike, in Atlanta. There you go, Dad. And although I know he's not going to like it at first, hopefully, eventually, he'll be able to focus less on what he left behind and more on 
what he made possible. Ahead, father knows best. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We've already wished all you dads a happy Father's Day. Here with a different take on the day is our contributor, Jim Gaffigan. It's Father's Day. Ugh. How weird is that? A day to honor dads? It doesn't make sense. Mother's Day, I get. They're mothers. They brought us into the world. Father's Day is like celebrating Darth Vader's birthday. Culturally, we don't even take Father's Day seriously. We all approach Father's Day like, well, our dads made us do it. Father's Day seems like an afterthought. I guess since we honored mothers in May, we should probably give a day in June to that guy who gets up early on his one day off to abandon us to go golfing. The gifts we give on Father's Day seem impersonal and absurd. A necktie? What is this, 1950? I guess giving dear old dad a noose would be a little on the nose. So let's give him a silk noose with a goofy pattern. Now, before you think I'm some dad hater, I should tell you I am a dad. I have a lot of kids. I say a lot because I'm nervous I might get the number wrong. I'm sure there are some really good dads out there, and I commend both of them. I do do things with my kids, but when I come back from an outing, just know they are going to be sunburned, covered in mosquito bites, and yes, I forgot to get napkins when I bought them ice cream. Wait, I, I lost one of their shoes. Well, at least I took them out. You're welcome. Generally, a day for dads is odd. Have you seen a dad? Sure, David Beckham's a dad, but most dads look like, frankly, look like me. There are not a lot of sexy dads. There's no dad equivalent to a hot mom or a yummy mummy. At least there shouldn't be. Because the phrase dad bod is not just an internet joke. It's a serious condition that affects millions of us. Dads are the human equivalent of cargo shorts. Yes, I do have cargo shorts. No, I don't know why that is funny or bad. I'm a dad. Besides the societal pressure to balance out Mother's Day, what have dads done to deserve a Father's Day? Frankly, plenty. Besides ordering pizzas and serving as the vice president of the family, dads have to battle their own selfishness every day. Dads strive to raise better, smarter, less dad-like humans. Remember, without the comparison to dads, moms would look horrible. Damn straight dads deserve a holiday. Now get me a beer, whatever your name is. I'm Charles Osgood. We hope all your dads enjoy your day and that you'll join us here again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.